when I come and give a talk. I like to take a moment when I have the space to uh, just pause and remember my sense of appreciation and gratitude for the Buddha and his remarkable teachings and uh, the sense that I have of uh, the way in which my life kind of rests in the foundation of the both the, the wisdom and the compassion that he offered to, to the world, but in a very uh, way for me that feels quite direct to myself, equally as, of course, to others. But uh, that sense of just uh, connecting with something that brings a sense of uplift, of, uh, of confidence in, in what we're engaged in is something really important uh, I was fortunate just a few days ago to ha have a visit by one of my teachers and someone I regard to also feel very fortunate to regard as a friend, Ajahn Sachito, who's uh, just recently become no longer the abbot of the Chethurst Monastery in West Sussex, where he's been abbot for about 20, 25 years, and he's just retired from that role, though he's still a monk and uh, a teacher. And uh, just lovely having him come to stay with Catherine and myself for an afternoon, evening and night, and following morning, just about 24 hours, I guess. And again, that sense of real um, uplift that comes from having contact with uh, others who've committed their life to Dharma practice. And so, in that sense of that quality of heart that uplifts in, in the presence of what we uh, might be moved by or aspire to uh, follow in the footsteps of, and whether we think of the Buddha or the other great teachers and saints and sages of the ages that have uh, been part of our lineage of practice. There's a, a question I think that arises for many of us at times, maybe early in the journey, maybe at the beginning of a retreat. Maybe it arises also sometimes in the middle of our journey, uh, the middle of a retreat equally. And the journey doesn't necessarily, well the journey may well be a lot larger than the retreat, but every time we uh, engage in a period of practice, there again perhaps arise for us questions of, of what is it that we really rest upon? What is the ground for us? And this is really the question of, of faith in the, in the Dharma tradition. To see that when we look at our experience, when we reflect upon what's happening and taking place moment by moment in our meditation and equally in our lives, we can see that Things are changing, moving, shifting, dissolving, appearing, reconfiguring, moment after moment, this body, this mind, this world. And when we see that unstoppable movement of change, of transformation, of movement of life, we might ask, what can I rest upon? Where is the ground? Where can I actually let the weight of my life come to rest? And this is really a question of faith, I would suggest. And the, the word the Buddha used was sada. So faith is a kind of approximate translation, has a number of associations in our culture which aren't necessarily that useful. We might think of faith as something to do with blind belief or absolute conformity to some idea or um, form of behavior. And that's really not what the Buddha was speaking about when he spoke of sada, faith. He, he spoke of it in a way that suggests, and, and one of the translations that, um, that comes that I really like is to rest the heart upon. This is a, 
I think, a very beautiful invitation and expression of what this quality might mean for us, to rest the heart upon. So in our lives, there can be many times of struggle, of disappointment, of disillusionment, in fact. We see that uh, things, people, situations, even in the world of the Dharma, don't always fulfill our hopes, our ideals, our aspirations. There can be a sense of a loss of faith, of disillusionment in people, in things, in religious ideologies. And perhaps there's something useful, something important in that loss of faith because those things that cannot really hold our hearts fully, that we cannot rest in, we have to in some way find a skillful disillusionment from, not in a rejecting of or a um, pushing away of the, such things, people, things and religious, spiritual traditions, they certainly have their place and their value, but their limits likewise. And so what do we place our faith in? Some people say, and I've heard this regularly from students and in conversation, I don't believe in anything, I don't have any faith, that doesn't relate to me, I practice and it's kind of more like, it makes sense to me, but faith, what's that? Um, and yet, interestingly, I think we express faith constantly. We couldn't actually do very much at all without it. Just the very fact that we take a step on the earth and trust that it will hold our weight. And if you've ever walked into a bog by accident and found out that it doesn't always do that and sunk into the mud, you realize that we're expressing a certain faith every time we take a step on the earth, just trusting that this will be solid enough to hold my weight. Or if we sit in a chair, when we release our weight, and mostly we just do it quite comfortably, it's like we sit in the chair, assuming it will hold us up, trusting, and in fact having faith based on our experience that something like this, a chair, is going to probably, most of the time, be able to hold our weight. Or something like this, piece of grass or ground that we can see, oh, this is something it's okay to walk on. It's something we've learned. And there's a kind of a faith that comes from learning what we can actually place our weight upon at a physical level, clearly. But ultimately, to let our heart rest in. And what we see is that until perhaps we start to reflect more on life and perhaps encounter spiritual teachings and practices, it's very easy to place one's faith, and we're in fact invited and encouraged to place one's faith in the process of gaining and avoiding experiences and, and at sort of controlling what's happening, that this is the thing that will allow us to take care of our life. And, of course, at a more obviously materialistic level in placing our faith in material things and houses and cars and um, possessions and even relationships, people, things, animals, places. We see that these things are not ultimately reliable if we start to look at our experience. And so, in response to the question of what can I rest my heart in? What can I allow my heart to rest upon? One of the fundamental areas that the teachings point to is that to rest in the truth of the Dharma, of the way things are, the capacity we have to see what is true with discernment and wisdom, and to respond 
with kindness and clarity to act in the world skillfully. And that this seeing of how things are and responding in accordance with that is actually what aligns us with the Dharma. And there's a question in terms of faith or in terms of what we do with our lives, I guess. And uh, I think this is a question you're probably already answering quite clearly by bringing yourself here. But nonetheless, it's quite good to articulate it. It's like, do we place our faith in and have most focus and interest in, in comfort and security? Or are we interested in truth and freedom? The reality is that if we place our faith in our ability to, maintain, to gain or to maintain comfort or security, we will be disappointed. Reliability, predictability and comfort are not guaranteed conditions and they're not conditions we can maintain no matter how hard we work at it. Of course, we can enjoy such conditions when they're present. And it's okay to put some time and care into taking care of our needs our well-being, bodily, emotional, heart and mind. But understanding that this is not the final resting place for our heart. We can never get things perfect. Even just, you know, trying to get warm enough or cool enough. Just the amount of equipment we bring along to just try and get the temperature right. I don't know if you go through this, but, you know, sort of wondering, should I wear a shirt under my shirt in case it's a little bit cool? Do I need to bring in a thick blanket? Should I bring a light? I don't know what it will be like when I come in here. It might be really warm and I'll be too hot. It might be really cold and I wish I brought my jacket. Simple things like that the mind can get so involved with. And of course there's many opportunities for that on a retreat equally as in our lives. And as I said, find it, sort of take some care with that, but not imagining that that will be the place we can rest. It's just, you know, working on trying to get it kind of okay enough, and sometimes it won't even be that, but that's just the way it is. So looking at this, faith is very much connected with action. The, the place of sada, of faith, is that it actually gives rise to the capacity to act. Without it, we can't really do much. As I said, just to sit on a cushion or a chair requires faith. To come on a retreat, there's a kind of a faith we're expressing. A sense of, okay, yes, this is something wholesome, this is something beneficial, this is something leading towards that which I'm deeply interested in, that which I care about in my life. And so it's important that, to see that in some way, whenever we're acting, we are expressing through our action what it is that we have some degree of faith in. That to some extent we are resting our heart and the well-being of our life in a certain way that's expressed through our actions, in a certain situation, thing or circumstance. This capacity to act, faith, gives rise to that. And in that, it's useful to see faith in the, um, the context of the, the, what the Buddha spoke of as the, uh, the indriya, the five faculties or five powers when they're fully developed. 
five spiritual faculties that we all have, and five spiritual powers, the same qualities when they're fully developed. And um, the, the first of these is faith. It's the beginning point, actually, that we have to have some faith, that something is possible before we try in any way to even begin to meditate or to engage. We have to have some sense of that. And based on that sense of faith, of sada, there comes some engagement of energy, the bringing of our, um, our engagement of our, our life's vitality towards something, towards a certain direction or goal or orientation. And here in the practice, it's very much towards bringing that, that mindfulness quality or that loving-kindness quality or that samatha quality that we make an effort towards these three or maybe one primarily, or maybe something of a balance of these three, three qualities that are at the, the core and heart of what meditative practice really turns on, this capacity to be awake, to be present, and the way that actually also informs our capacity to, to settle. And so the third spiritual faculty is, is mindfulness, presence, awareness, sati, Coming from effort, we're more able to be present and connected as we engage, based on some sense of faith, of sada. Mindfulness starts to develop, starts to build. And as it does so, there's a calming, there's a steadying, there's a settling. And again, whether one is engaged in more of an insight or vipassana-oriented practice, or, or a loving-kindness, metta, brahma-vihara-style practice, it's still that sustaining, that mindful sustaining of the practice that allows the heart and mind to settle more and more deeply, to become calm, concentrated, samadhi. This is the, the fourth of the spiritual faculties, this collected, gathered steadiness of heart and mind. And from this we start to see more clearly discerning wisdom arises naturally. And this panya, wisdom, is the fifth of the spiritual faculties. So we see faith leads to engagement, application of our effort, and that brings the sense of mindfulness, clarity, steadiness, deepening into calm, concentration, focus, and out of that Wisdom, discernment and understanding. And from seeing that process, and even if it's only in small ways we've seen it in our lives or on our retreat, some of you have just been here a couple of days and may more be sort of feeling all the things that don't seem to be any of those qualities and maybe more struggling at times with difficult patterns of reactivity or drowsiness or um, agitation and confusion. And of course, you know, after a couple of weeks on retreat, sometimes we go through cycles of that in the mid middle of our retreat too. So it's not just a early retreat phenomena. And yet, taking a moment to notice when those, when that, that kind of cycle, sometimes called the engine of awakening, the movement of, oh, some sense of faith. And then we pay it, make the effort to pay attention. And in that paying attention and engaging with our practice, it starts to settle and deepen. And then there's some fruition of that and clarity or wisdom and understanding. And out of that comes faith. It's like, oh yes, oh yes, this actually works, this serves. This heart and mind can actually grow, can mature, can develop on the path in a way that's wholesome, that leads to well-being. And so in that cycle, then again, faith, more faith arising from that seeing, that wisdom, that understanding. And the cycle applies equally, of course, if we're, we're working within the, 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 the framework of, uh, 
of Brahma Vihara metta practice or samatha practice, again, as we see the practice deepen, there's a kind of a discernment, a wisdom that comes, oh yes, okay, this is wholesome, this is beneficial, that leads to more faith. And therefore, further engagement, sustained, deepening, wholehearted engagement. And so the engine turns, we could say, starts to generate momentum, power. And in this way, it begins to counteract the, the power and the momentum of our conditioning, of our habits and patterns that perhaps we have invested years and who knows, lifetimes of energy into unconsciously, unintentionally, but which we can transform. And these uh, faculties, beginning with faith, are really the, uh, the key vehicle, or the motor, the engine, we sometimes say, for this transformation. So it's important to understand that, you know, faith doesn't mean passivity. And this is an association we might have with it. You know, I'll rest my heart upon it and go to sleep sort of thing. That's that kind of faith that, you know, I don't have to do anything. It's all going to be taken care of. And it's true that we don't have to make things happen in practice, but we do need to really show up and see what's here. You know, there's this great story of a, of a flood that uh, there was a, a storm and this, this man... Um, saw the rain coming and um, his friends came and said, oh, it it's, it's, looks like a lot of rain. Well, we think we need to go. Um, we think we should move out of this village. It's kind of prone to flooding. And he said, no, no, it's fine. I have faith in my saviour. It'll be all right. God will save me. You know, he doesn't do anything in the water. It comes up to the edge of the house and someone comes past and says, come on, you should leave. No, no, I'm fine. It gets a little higher. Someone comes on a boat and, he, and says, jump in my boat. I'll save you. No, 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 God will save me, he says. And, You've probably heard this story, haven't you? But the water, it's been raining quite a lot recently, which is why I was thinking of this still. You know, the water gets up to the second story of the house. He's up there. Someone comes past on a motorbike, motorboat, you know, jump in, I'll save you. No, 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 God will save me. Gets to his roof and he's climbed out on his roof and he's sitting on top of the roof and a helicopter comes past. And says, you know, jump, grab hold of the rope. I'll save you. No, no, God will save me. God will save me, he says. And the water keeps rising. He drowns. He dies. He goes up to heaven as you would expect, he was a man of great faith. Um, and when he gets there, he says, he goes you know, th straight through the pearly gates, um, goes up to God and says, God, I don't understand what happened. I had such faith in you. And God says, I don't understand either. I sent you a helicopter, a motorboat, a rowboat and two friends. That sense of faith that someone's going to do it for me. That, that's not what faith is about. We have to really be here in our practice and present to see and find the useful responses. It's not that we make the fruit or that we produce the outcomes through effort or will of kind of somehow controlling the unfoldment of practice, but we really do have to be here for it wholeheartedly and listen and see. What's needed? And with this quality of faith, of sada, we can act, we can respond, we have this capacity to be with what's difficult, to stay present in the face of what is scary at times, challenging, or just painful, or unfamiliar, which has its own particular kind of sort of 
unsettledness that it generates for us, or confusion, or sometimes fear. So it's important to, to be aware of the place of, of sada in relationship to those things that are difficult. Now when there's pain, when there's fear, when there's difficulty, it's really important to come into the present moment. To just notice how quickly we move away into the future with that which we fear that generates anxiety, whether it be physical pain in the body or ideas about things that might go wrong in our lives. Seeing the tendency to move into the future. And seeing how in that we're somehow trying to work out a way to avoid the thing we don't want to happen from either happening or the thing that we don't like that's happening already to stop it continuing, to somehow fix it or prevent it from ever coming back. And it doesn't bring any relief. That movement into the future doesn't work. So with, with, with that sense of faith, there's a, there's a willingness to say, okay, can I meet this here? Can I meet this place of discomfort in my body or distress in my heart or confusion in my mind? Can I meet that just as it is? And as we do that, as we see that we have the capacity to meet it, because what arises often in the fear or the doubt and confusion is a sense of, I can't do it, I can't do it. But the truth is we're already doing it. Whatever it is that's arisen, if it's actually arisen, we're already here. And we're with it. It hasn't annihilated us, or else the question wouldn't arise. It's only when we think, I can't keep doing it. What that usually means is, I don't like it and I don't want to. But that's a very different conclusion, if we see it clearly. So with the things that are already here, well, it's not true that we can't deal with it. Because we are dealing with it, we are meeting it, even though it's difficult. And with things that haven't arisen, well, when we think, I can't deal with that, it's true you can't, because it doesn't exist yet. And it may never exist. The interesting thing there is, we don't need to deal with it, because it's not here. And so with difficult and challenging experiences, that sense of trust that we can grow, that we can learn, that we can develop, to see, oh, actually, this human being has the remarkable capacity to meet life, to open to it to transform through that meeting. And it's so important with those places that we might find difficult, where we might find at times we're not quite able to easily trust, or we don't have a sense of faith in our capacity to meet what's here, to really bring as much kindness Encourage as we're able in just the process of connecting, of being right where we are. And as we do that, I think we see that we can trust in our capacity. It shows itself. And I think you've all done this enough to know. And that's why we're here. Why would we come back if we thought this wasn't possible? Why would we stay having come back, even for a day or two, let alone longer? So something in us knows that, but we don't always feel in contact with it. And so really paying attention, noticing, oh yes, it is possible here for me, for this human being, to meet this life. And actually to be awakened by it. This is part of what leads me to come and 
wish to pay my respects, to take a moment to bow to the Buddha when I speak and endeavor to share something of what I've understood of what he taught. Because in a way that's what he's also representing for us. He's saying, yes, this can be done by human beings like you, like me, and has been done by human beings like you, like me, starting with himself, but followed by a stream of women and men, a stream of humanity that has flowed through the ages from his time through this day and continues to flow through this hall. And we are part of that. So again, this process that we're engaged in, we see that as we pay attention, we start to notice what's actually going on. It's, it's, in a way, it's mindfulness that reveals what's happening. By paying attention, we start to see where we hold on and where we resist experience, where we, where we struggle with the way things are, trying to impose some idea or um, personal preference for how it should be or how I'd like it to be onto the truth of it, which isn't always that way. So we just, that's just simply revealed by being present, by being awake. And it's actually wisdom, it's discernment that allows us to see that this is painful, that this is suffering, that holding on to or resisting experience doesn't serve our well-being. It's, it's actually painful to do so. So the seeing of the truth of suffering and the cause of suffering being in that holding on to or pushing away, which we speak of as kind of craving and aversion, the different forms of attachment that we experience in the mind and the heart. Wisdom simply sees this playing out. And it's so important not to judge that when you see it. To see, oh yeah, that's what this body-mind process sometimes gets engaged in, because sometimes it doesn't know any better. But seeing the suffering that's there, seeing the limitation and the just unhelpfulness of those patterns of reactivity, there's a natural sense of kindness, of compassion that begins to arise saying, just let go of those things you're trying to hold on to. And just with the things that are difficult, let them be. Just let them be. Sure, we might do things, we might sometimes need to change our posture if the body is under too much pressure. But with regard to the, the whole experience of things not being as I would wish them to be, or as I think they should be, Seeing, can I let it be like this? So many things there are in this world. We have to let them be. And it's faith that allows us to do this. Wisdom doesn't do this. Wisdom just sees the suffering in it. It's actually faith that allows us to let go. That sense of, okay, I'm letting go into something, which is the place my heart rests upon. Or I'm learning, it allows us to let things be knowing that our heart doesn't rest in the outcome of those circumstances of getting it together or holding it together in a certain way. Within our practice or within the world, it's the same. The heart actually needs to rest in something deeper and more reliable. And it's the faith that allows us to do this. So there's again, faith's key place in the process of actually freeing our hearts. Because it's that letting go that frees the heart and the mind. It's that releasing of entanglement, of constriction, of contraction, of bondage and binding oneself to the demand for things to be or not be 
a particular way. That as that softens and opens, it's like, oh, there's space. There's room, there's life. Vitality begins to flow more naturally, more organically, more freely. And this faith then can be seen as something that's expressed in action. It's not a belief or an ideology or a bunch of ideas that we subscribe to because we think they're good or right. All of that leads to a kind of what is called faith often, but that often leads to a narrowness of mind or a, a conflictual relationship with people who may take a different view. And we see the tragic way that plays out in the world so often. So sada, that letting or resting our heart upon, is not about a belief system or an ideology. But the Dharma, the Buddha's teaching, is a way to act, a way to live, not a belief to hold on to. And that living of one's life, of one's practice, that's really based in seeing what serves, seeing what leads to well-being. And it's equally expressed somewhat in the, the courage it requires from us to th let things be or to let go of something we're holding on to. It actually, faith has a certain kind of courage in it because by nature we need faith in those places that are a little bit challenging or scary in some way. It's not easy for us to enter into places of unknown territory on retreat. What will it be like if I don't actually move when I feel agitated, restless, distressed? What if I actually sit here with as much kindness as I can bring? What would that be like? We don't know what it will be like, so it's kind of scary in a certain way. It needs some courage. And again, there's a, there's a story I rather enjoy. And um, there's a, a man walking on a cliff edge somewhere. I don't quite know where. And as he's walking along, he's distracted for a moment by something and loses his balance and slips and falls over the edge of the cliff. And plummeting down, he grabs hold of the branch of a tree that's sticking out from the cliff. And he's 50 yards, 50 meters from the top of the cliff and it's another 100 yards, 100 meters to the bottom. And at the bottom there are these sharp rocks and a raging river. Um, and he's holding on, and despite having been a lifelong atheist, he suddenly thinks, God, if you can help me, I'll believe in you forever. And having thought it, he says, God, if you believe in me, sorry, if you save me, I'll believe in you forever. And he almost lets go of the branch as this loud, rumbling voice responds, saying, that's what they all say. No, no, God, he said, feeling suddenly hopeful. I, I really mean it. I will believe in you. I will have immense faith. Just, I, I could feel it already. If you save me, I, I will sing your praises around the world. Hmm, says the rumbling voice. Hmm, yeah, I've heard this before. But okay, you say you really trust me. Hmm, yeah, you have faith. Really? Oh, my, the faith is so strong. I feel it in my heart already. It's, it's there. I believe, God. I believe. Okay, well, if you have faith, I will save you. Let go of the branch. 
Let go of the branch? Do you think I'm crazy? It's kind of like that sometimes, isn't it? We know that maybe we need to let go. We have some trust in that. The power, the transformative power of, of releasing our grip upon things. And it sometimes is not easy. Sometimes we think, that's crazy. I cannot, I will not, I shall not do that. And yet something in us nonetheless finds the courage, has the faith, comes forth with the willingness to say, okay, let's see what happens. Let's actually just trust in the way things are. A trust in our best aspiration, our most wholesome intentions, the noble orientation of our life, and then let go. See what happens. And this is very much what we're doing moment by moment on a retreat in our practice. Setting up as clear a wholesome intention and wholesome motivation to be mindful, to bring loving kindness, to support a calming of the mind or to bring an investigation of a curious reflective exploration of what's going on. Again, these primary qualities we're establishing in meditation as a way of meeting what's here. And with that, then letting go of what the result is, the outcome, whether we're actually able to be mindful or feel that sense of sort of warm openness of, 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 of kindness arising, or, or, or we, maybe we feel quite the opposite. We're distracted or we feel reactive, or not at all calm, whatever it might be. But we're doing the practice, and what comes is what comes. We don't get to control the outcome. But understanding that if we keep bringing ourselves back and engaging in a wholesome way, this will bring wholesome fruit in line with our intention and our aspiration. Because this is the nature of things. This is the way the water of life flows. And it flows unstoppably in one direction, which is to the ocean. And this is the nature of water, just as it is the nature of life, when we align ourselves with the truth of things more and more fully. So one of the elements of faith, or expressions of faith, is also this willingness to let go of dwelling in thought. The occupation, preoccupation, we could say, with mental, conceptual, verbal activity the stories of past and future, the fantasies and dreams, the nightmares, the reminiscences, the nostalgia, the remorse and regrets, the hopes and excitement, the plans, all of that. And that might just be for what you're going to do later in the morning, let alone what goes beyond that. It might even be for the condition we're hoping to arrive in by the end of this Dharma talk, or fearing we might arrive in if this talk doesn't end soon because maybe my knee is hurting. Notice how quickly we move out into the future. Do we have the courage and the faith in our life to just step back, to just gently begin to disentangle, to relinquish our dependence upon the conceptual mind? Because this is a place where we try to find 
in a way, a resting place for our life, and it cannot rest in there. Our heart and our mind cannot rest in the realm of thinking. So we arrive in the mysterious present, in the immediacy of what is here and what is now, which we cannot know in any way other than by entering into it rather nakedly, rather openly, rather immediately. It's the only way we can know what is here, come to understand more deeply the nature of this life with its challenges and its beauty. That has no ultimate reference point we can locate and hold on to or claim as our attainment or possession. There is no location that we can center our life around, that we can define our identity by. There is no location available. And that's a little unsettling for us. And yet, in the practice, we can see, we can know for ourselves. And again, I'm confident you do know this. Though maybe, if you're like most of us human beings, we don't always remember the things we know. But there is a knowing about what it means to be located right here and right now. It's different than having a location, because here and now, isn't something we can take hold of. It's fluid, it's dynamic, and yet it's where true rest is found. It's where the heart actually comes to rest, and the mind. And actually the expression of our practice that is show, shows itself as this trust, this faith in the immediacy of life, in the truth of life. This is perhaps at the heart of it what we're learning what we're deepening in, what we're opening more and more fully into as we journey on the path, as we travel this remarkable way. And as I said, sometimes that means in that opening and that willingness to really be here without putting pressure upon what's happening to somehow conform to our preference, to our wish, having the courage and that really nobility of heart to face, to meet, to open to our life, then the things that challenge us will at times inevitably arise and yet in their arising can be transformed by the presence we bring to meet them. There's a beautiful poem by Wendell Berry. He writes, I go among trees and sit still. All my stirring becomes quiet around me like circles on water. My tasks lie in their places where I left them, asleep like cattle. Then what I am afraid of comes. I sit for a while in its sight. Then what I fear in it leaves it. And the fear of it leaves me. 
It sings, and I hear its song. And this, this process of encountering, of sitting in the presence of just where we are, amongst trees, which is kind of a nice place to practice if you've ever had the opportunity. Maybe a little damp today, but you might like to try it. The Buddha recommended sitting at the root of trees. And that interesting sense of our stirring becomes quiet, our tasks are put down. This is what it means to enter into the retreat more fully and deeply as we do. And at times things come. But in the presence of those things that are scary, we start to see that our fear of them and what we fear in them is not as real as we have imagined it to be. And as we open into the truth of things, we actually enter into relationship with those things we have been unable to connect with. We are touched by them in ways that may be tender or challenging. But in the willingness to simply listen to what's here, those places of challenge, of tenderness, of fear, of vulnerability, they can be transformed. And this capacity of, of sada, of faith, again, has an essential contribution to that possibility. That trusting in, oh yes, I can meet this. And in hearing it sing, in hearing the song of our life, there is a profound healing and transformation that takes place. In a way in which our heart can soften and open, to expand, to embrace even that which we find not easy and to hold with tenderness and care that which we love and appreciate. And of course, sometimes it's challenging what we encounter, as I said. Sometimes the fear is strong, or there seems to be some aggression, and sometimes that can be external aggression. Sometimes it can be the way in which internally there is a, a kind of aggressive, critical, self-judging, undermining, or even attacking tendency of the mind, that it's really important to recognize as something that doesn't serve our well-being, that isn't skillful, that sometimes comes in the guise of somehow trying to get us to improve ourselves or improve our practice. And actually sometimes we need to say in response to such patterns of reactive, it's not just about acknowledging or being aware of it, but actually saying, no, that's not helpful. Quite simply, it's not helpful. It's a kind of an expression of an absence of faith when there's that self-judging, attacking tendency playing up. It's like we don't quite trust ourselves or our experience. We're trying to somehow coerce ourselves into making it be different. And so there needs to be a certain kind of strength that goes with faith also. Again, faith isn't just a soft or a passive quality at all. A certain strength, a certain courage to stand for what we trust what we believe in, what we value. And there's a particular mudra or form you see the Buddha in sometimes, just as on the, the Buddha image up here, he's touching the earth and affirming his, uh, his right, his, his birthright, in fact, his potential as a human being to awaken and for all human beings to awaken and touching the earth as he does in this mudra. There's another mudra which 
He's more often seen doing it when he's standing up, but sometimes sitting where the hand is like this. I'm left-handed. He probably does it with his right hand. I don't remember. And it's called the fearless mudra, abhaya mudra. And I don't know if you're interested to try it. I sometimes explore this with, with, with practitioners of certain situations. It's a very interesting gesture. You can try it if you like. You don't have to. But if you make your hand quite firm so the fingers are together, a bit like a karate chop hand, even I don't know about karate, but I think it's something like that. So it's kind of firm and it's sort of here. And notice what it's like. The interesting thing is it's a soft part of your hand. This is not an aggressive thing. This is not what you would hurt someone with, these bony knuckles. But it's actually quite strong. And actually, it's a pretty universal gesture. You know, traffic officers say, stop. Or if we want to say, stop, you can notice perhaps it has that quality. It's a protective mudra. But it's not aggressive, and yet it's strong. And if we need to say, back off, we can. You often see at the front of a monastery or a temple quite fierce-looking characters around the door or the gates. They don't look like they're practicing loving-kindness. And you might wonder, well, what are they doing there? Isn't Buddhism about being nice? And not nice in the traditional sort of nicey-nice sense of the word. There's a courageous, compassionate strength in saying no to that which is not wholesome. Being willing to stand in the face, just as, and I sometimes use this image, as if we were to see, if we were to see an adult speaking to a child really harshly, critically, judging, blaming, criticizing, we might feel moved to just step there and say, actually, that's not helpful. That's not what's going to help here. Even if there's something foolish that's happened, or the child hasn't been skillful, they're still learning. And likewise, sometimes we need to actually protect ourselves from judgment, from reactivity, from self-blaming critical patterns of reactivity. And this can be really useful. So just to say, no, that's not helpful. To see if we can act from a place of kindness and love. To offer protection. To trust in our life sufficiently that we would wish to protect it. To care for it. Not protection by running away from or pushing away our experience, but where there may be patterns of reactivity that aren't skillful and helpful. Without judging them. Because actually, in a very strange and unfortunately convoluted way, all that judging reactivity and Pressure is actually trying to somehow look after us by getting us to stop doing the things or do the kinds of things that it thinks would improve things for us. Now, mostly it's wrong. It hasn't actually got a clue, that pattern of reactivity. So listen, if that, that negative or critical or harsh judgmental tone of voice starts to arise, sometimes what's really helpful is just to say, actually, no, that's not helpful. It's not useful. Sometimes actually taking... The posture, expressing the mudra of, oh, okay, this is, this is some of the forces that we're actually protecting the temple of our heart from. And by the very, the very nature of this, this engagement of practice, those kind of forces arise, inevitably, at times for us. And without rejecting or judging, just saying, actually, no, that's not useful. And sometimes it's like, no, that's not useful. There's that scene from The Lord of the Rings, I don't know if you know the book or the movie, but where the, um, the sort of the, the demonic, giant demonic monster, the Balrog, is confronting the, uh, the company of uh, 
travellers who are trying to save the world, um, and um, Gandalf the wizard sort of faces them across this narrow bridge and puts his staff, thumps his staff down onto the bridge and says, you shall not pass. And it's sometimes like that. Just, no, we don't have to make so much noise maybe. But um, it's kind of impressive when it happens. And we see there's something noble, there's something powerful in that. And again, it's like actually trusting, having some faith in the goodness of our hearts, of our intentions in this way, and taking care to protect. To have faith in our, in our being, in our life, in the truth of our experience. Trusting in our capacity to open to, to rest in this meeting of life rather than controlling it. The more we find ourselves able to do this, the more peace we find in life. It's that simple. The path is not so complicated. As I said, it's faith that allows us to let go. Ajahn Chah once said, you know, let go a little, you'll know a little peace. Let go a lot, you'll know a lot of peace. Let go completely and you'll know complete peace and natural freedom. That's really what we're engaged in here. So it's really important to honour the goodness of our aspiration, the goodness of what moves us to enter into this retreat, to enter into this sitting, to enter into this moment again and again and again. To accept, to acknowledge our limitations, but really important to honour the wholesome qualities, the wholesome actions, the wholesome practice we're engaged in here. To see the kindness and care that underlies everything, actually everything that we ever did, and in fact that anybody ever did, came because we cared. Now that caring isn't always allied to wisdom. And this is a problem because sometimes out of very good intentions, as we say in the, the well-known phrase, uh, a road to hell is paved. But skillful intentions allied to wisdom, to discernment, this is actually the path to freedom and liberation. And so sometimes we find ways to express and sometimes we hold back from that. I, I always struck by the response I have to the to the rabbits on the lawn when I'm here in the sort of as the evening draws in. And there's you know, these soft little bunny rabbits. And there's this part of me that just wants to grab them and cuddle them. Because I think I'd kind of like to extend that to them. And I, I'm aware that actually it would probably terrify them if I tried. And it's best not to jump on them like that. So there's a, there's a kind of a restraint as well. Of, okay, what's useful here? What's skillful? The heart opens. And maybe I can just wish well for this little creature. Sometimes it's towards ourselves. We can just, oh, we can't always hold easily all the places that are difficult, or we can't salve the places that are sore in our hearts. We can't always take that tenderness away, but we can hold it with kindness, with care. And even our anger against others, against ourselves, our reactivity, it's born of pain. Often the pain of not caring, not feeling, the pain of being closed or disconnected. To really allow ourselves to care for this, to, again, to trust in the capacity for transformation that is very much the nature 
at the very heart of what we are is something that is transformative, transformable, transforming ongoingly. All things change in time. And difficult things are subject to this. This is one of the good things about the truth of change. Difficult things change. They do not stay the same. They move. Or even if they seem to stay the same, our capacity to encompass and hold them grows as we learn to meet them more and more fully. To really trust and to have faith, to let your heart rest in this capacity for the growth, for the cultivation, for the development of that which is wholesome and beneficial. This heart and mind. Such a remarkable thing. So much potentiality. Now the Buddha once said, he said, you know, I know of no single thing that's is so conducive to suffering as an untrained heart and mind, he said. And I know of no single thing that is more conducive to happiness, well-being, and the end of suffering than a well-trained heart and mind. It's the same place. This is where that transformation takes place. And this practice is that, we could say, training. Or bhavana is the word, really, that the Buddha used, that we translate as meditation. But bhavana, it's like cultivation. It's like something that grows, like seeds we plant that, sure, we need to water them and take care of the soil and see if we can remove the weeds. But actually, the nature of seeds is that they grow. They burst forth from the earth. They bear fruit in their time. And we can have faith in this. We can let our heart rest in this capacity for patience, attentiveness, loving kindness, wisdom, generosity, courage, kindness. To trust equally in life itself, that it offers what we need. Not always what we want, not always what we like, but what we need to wake up. And one of the most annoying, it seems, things about life is that it keeps offering us the things we need to learn from until we do. And even when we sometimes think, I've learnt that one, hey, I've learnt that one really well. Actually, usually when we have that thought, like, I've really learnt that one really well, it means we haven't quite finished our business with it. Because when we've finished our business with it, we don't even think, I've learnt that one, or I'm done with it. It's just done. And so trusting in the way in which life finds a way to bring us back to the places where we're, we are actually in the process of waking up. And to take heart from the fact that life does that, because that's how we wake up. And if that didn't happen, we wouldn't wake up. It would be nice if there was an easier or a more comfortable way. But there doesn't seem to be. I mean, if someone comes up with one, I'm sure they'll um, sell a lot of books. But uh, mostly it does actually require that we meet what's here. To trust in the Dharma, this path of wisdom and compassion. Have faith in this. To let our heart rest in this. To rest in the stream of human spiritual aspiration. Of the stream of human spiritual development. And the stream of human spiritual realization and transformation that we are part of. That we are part of and that is unstoppable. 
There's a lovely line from Nagarjuna where he says something like, even when the Buddhas, even when Buddhas do not appear on the, in the earth, on the earth, the Dharma springs forth by itself. And it does, unstoppably. To have faith, to let our heart rest in this capacity for awakening, for freedom, for realization, for transformation that the Buddha represents for all of us and that we actually represent for each other as the Sangha, as the community of practitioners moving on the way, traveling the journey, flowing with the stream in the current of liberation. We too, each of us, have this capacity to awaken, to realize the, the peaceful, wide open, awakened condition of heart and mind that is unbound. So let's sit quietly for a few moments. So may we all here in our practice together and in our lives, may we deepen in, in faith and sada. May we allow our hearts to come to rest in the truth of life, in this journey of awakening hearts and minds of which we are inextricably a part and an expression. And may we come to know for ourselves the, the peace and freedom of the heart and mind unbound for our own well-being and for the welfare of all beings. So please continue in your practice. There are some interviews now and um, at 11.45 there's a group meeting which is optional but uh, specifically for those of you who arrived in the last couple of days. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.